Welcome to Our Opinions Are Correct, a podcast about science fiction and society. I'm Annalee Newitz. I'm a science journalist who writes science fiction. I'm Charlie Jane Anders. I'm a science fiction writer who obsesses rather a lot about science. And in this episode, we're going to say, fuck your nihilism. Fuck your nihilism. <laughs> Charlie's like really enthusiastic about that. Fuck it. Which actually is kind of a nihilistic thing to say. So we're just giving you some meta here. But, you know, there's a lot of sense right now, I think, generally floating around many parts of the world that civilization is collapsing. World is ending. There's a scary pandemic. Governments seem to be becoming even more unstable. Economies are becoming unstable. Climate change has finally made its presence known in the form of superstorms and super fires. So basically what I'm saying is things are really scary. Things are scary. And one of the responses to that, I think, in fiction and storytelling more generally, is to write nihilistic stories. And today, we're going to talk about what that looks like and why it can go fuck off. What kind of stories are people telling about the end of everything? So I want to place the origins of what I'm calling nihilistic storytelling with Dr. Strangelove. So I'm not going too far back. I'm sure there's plenty of nihilism before that, too. But I'm thinking of a specifically late 20th century kind of storytelling that's very satirical and dark and that focuses really closely on issues around war and money and technology. Mm -hmm. So for those of you who are not familiar with Stanley Kubrick's amazing 1960s film, Dr. Strangelove, it's about basically the warmongers who want to end the world with nukes. And the premise is there's a guy who is a thinly disguised version of Edward Teller named Dr. Strangelove, played very memorably by Peter Sellers, who plays like five other roles in the film. He's so amazing. God, I I love him so much. Anyway, so he's invented this kind of nuclear device. It's the doomsday device, which the great innovation, as he will explain in a clip that we have coming up, is that once you set it off, you can't take it back. And it's actually designed so that no human can choose to set it off. And here he is talking about it. Mr. President, the technology required is easily within the means of even the smallest nuclear power. It requires only the will to do so. But how is it possible for this thing to be triggered automatically and at the same time impossible to untrigger? Mr. President, it is not only possible, it is essential. That is the whole idea of this machine, you know. Deterrence is the art of producing in the mind of the enemy the fear to attack. And so because of the automated and irrevocable decision-making process which rules out 
human meddling. The doomsday machine is terrifying. It's, it's simple to understand and completely credible and convincing. Gee, I wish we had one of them doomsday machines, Dainty. But this is fantastic, strange love. How can it be triggered automatically? Well, it's remarkably simple to do that. When you merely wish to bury bombs, there's no limit to the size. After that, they are connected to a gigantic complex of computers. Now then, a specific and clearly defined set of circumstances under which the bombs are to be exploded is programmed into a tape memory bank. The yeah. thing I love about this, and actually I had forgotten until I rewatched the film, is that the idea here is that, first of all, it's this sort of notion of a bomb you can't take back. You mm-hmm. know, it's like this is a doomsday device, and the whole point of it is that if it's launched, that's it, you're it, done. It's an automated deterrent, and it basically like goes off if you're attacked. Right. And the thing I had forgotten was how much it's connected to technology. And it has that little moment where one of the other people in the war room or situation room says, you know, how how can this work? And he says, well, it is connected to a room of computers. And, you know, this is something that has been a real fantasy of the military industrial complex since its inception, really, in the 1950s, where you'd have basically an AI deciding when to launch nukes. So this is kind of the satirical high art version of the fantasy in Terminator. Right, or war games. Or war games. Exactly. In fact, war games is definitely kind of revisiting Dr. Strangelove. And I think it's important to place Dr. Strangelove at the heart of this kind of nihilistic fantasy because it has inspired so many subsequent science Mm -hmm. fiction films and films about high-tech warfare. Now, the other thing about Dr. Strangelove is that it plays with the idea of conspiracy theories fueling a lot of these men, and they are all men, they're all white men, who are, you know, running this war. And, you know, there's a famous scene where one of them talks about how the communists are invading our precious bodily fluids and how women are stealing his essence, in other words, Mm -hmm. his sperm. And um, it's an amazing scene. And there's a lot of... So fucking weird. Yeah, there's a lot of sort of repressed homosexuality kind of lurking at the edges of the story. And so these are people who are kind of sexually frustrated and really just want to be fucking each other, but instead they're fucking the world with a bomb. (laughs) And it's a very – it's super dark. It's super satirical. It's about the men who rejoice in destroying everything. And I think that the next interesting example of this kind of nihilism comes in the contemporary show Mr. Robot. Mm -hmm. And – In the very first episode of that show, which is also about technology and destroying the world and sort of celebrating the end of the world, we hear from Elliot, who's our main character, who, spoiler alert, is also Mr. Robot, which if you've been watching the show, you already figured that out about three seasons ago. He is talking in this clip to his shrink about what it is that he hates about the world. Well, actually, he's imagining talking to her. He doesn't actually tell her this. This is what he's thinking. Is it that we collectively thought Steve Jobs was a great man, even when we knew he made billions off the backs of children? Or maybe it's that it feels like all our heroes are counterfeit. The world itself is just one big hoax, spamming each other with our running commentary bullshit masquerading as insight. 
Are social media faking as intimacy? Or is it that we voted for this? Not with our rigged elections, but with our things, our property, our money. I'm not saying anything new. We all know why we do this. Not because Hunger Games books makes us happy, but because we want to be sedated. Because it's painful not to pretend. Because we're cowards. So what I think is interesting here to think about in terms of our contemporary nihilistic storytelling is that Elliot, like Dr. Strangelove, is full of rage. He has a technological solution to end the world. (laughs) Techno-solutionism for total mass destruction. The problems of the world are not associated with communism for him, but with consumer capitalism Mm -hmm. and with how our techno-gods like Steve Jobs turned out to be actually corrupt bastards. The other thing I think that's really important that's changed about the nihilism story between Dr. Strangelove in the 1960s and Mr. Robot in the 2020s is now we identify with the character who is the nihilist, who wants to destroy the world. In Dr. Strangelove, the men who want to destroy the world are people that we are supposed to hate and laugh at. It's a movie about the men who we reject. They are toxic masculinity. They are horrible warmongers, and we hate them. Mm -hmm. And the only sympathetic character is this poor European guy who keeps saying, like, can we please not? <laughs> right. <laughs> not? He's also played by Peter Sellers. Yeah. And, and just this amazing mm. role. And in Mr. Robot, yes, we understand that Elliot has all kinds of problems, but we also strongly identify with him. The show wants us to be in his head, to sympathize with him, and to kind of cheer him on, even though we also acknowledge that what he's doing is destructive. And so I think that's a really interesting turn to keep in mind as we think about this kind of genre. And I think some other stories in the genre are things like Fight Club, clear example of identifying with the nihilist who wants to destroy everything. Obviously, this year's Joker film, mm-hmm. um, and, or last year's Joker film, right? this, this the, year's Oscar winner. The Joker is actually, you know, previously described in The Dark Knight as being like some men want to watch the world burn. And that's basically like his whole thing is that, you know, yeah, he wants to burn it all down because the world is fucked. And just as we identify with Elliot in Mr. Robot, in the new Joker film, we are identifying with Joker. We definitely, again, we understand that Joker is fucked up, but he is a character who is supposed to elicit our sympathy and and elicit our identification. And we also see it in on a sort of funnier vein, a movie like Cabin in the Woods, where basically at the end, spoiler, the characters are like, yeah, whatever, let the world be destroyed. Who cares? Let's have a cigarette. It's basically let the world be destroyed rather than capitulate to Sigourney Weaver, who turns out to basically offer them this kind of evil bargain. And they're like, no, we're just going to destroy the world instead. Yeah. But I mean, the point is that, yeah, they just choose to destroy everyone. There's things like the Walking Dead series, which I think it's a little bit of a more complicated sell to talk about that as a nihilism story. But I think it's a story that's about kind of rejoicing in the collapse of everything. It's, I think it's often characterized as a post-apocalyptic story. And I would argue that it's actually an apocalyptic story. It's taking place right in the middle of the apocalypse. No one is rebuilding shit except like, OK, they go live on a farm or something like that. But like they're not rebuilding civilization. They're still hunkered down 
enduring the death of their civilization. Right. And in fact, the apocalyptic genre is a lot of wish fulfillment. I mean, this is a thing that we've talked about before, I know, but the apocalyptic genre is a lot of basically like wallowing in the kind of pleasure of not having to be part of a society anymore in the way that we are now. You don't have to go to work. You don't have to be nice to your shitty neighbors. You don't have to pick up after yourself. You don't have to like wipe your butt after you poop. You can just do whatever you want. And like there's a lot of wish fulfillment in being like one of the people who is a survivor who gets to kind of like be kind of a king in the wasteland, I think. And the roots of the post-apocalyptic genre are in a kind of absurdism that celebrates that through the absence of all these civilized structures, it kind of shows that the civilized structures were ridiculous and arbitrary and pointless to begin with. And we never really needed them. Like I've been thinking a lot lately for some reason about this like classic apocalyptic film, I guess it served during the apocalypse, that came out around the same time as Dr. Strangelove called The Bed Sitting Room which is kind of like an extended Monty Python episode set in an apocalyptic world where everything is just weird and messed up and people are just kind of wandering around the wasteland being bizarre. And it's just – I think it's a lot of the same actors from like Monty Python and other British comedy of the time. And it's just like a giant fucking weird fest that kind of revels in everything being fucked. And I think that that is part of the in- impulse behind – these kinds of apocalyptic stories is the kind of freedom of no longer having to like worry about whether your hair looks nice or not, but also the freedom of not having to deal with other people and to have to watch what you say to your coworkers and all this other shit. People feel very constrained in both reasonable and unreasonable ways in our current society. And so there is a certain amount of wish fulfillment in just like I get to be, you know, on my own in the wasteland and do whatever the fuck I want. I definitely think that's a big part of it, the like do whatever you want aspect. But I also think, you know, we should honor some of what Elliot says in his speech in Mr. Robot because there are actually things that are genuinely fucked up about the world. Oh, yeah. And so his response is to totally destroy everything. And it's understandable because how do you tackle something like, you know, white settler colonialism, global capitalism, like all these things that have just wrecked humanity and wrecked the planet, it feels like the only option sometimes is to burn it all down. And there's actually a whole strand of what I would call sort of nihilistic storytelling that comes out of environmentalism because humans in these scenarios are kind of just garbage. You know, they've trashed the planet. You know, they've created the smog monster (laughs) uh, in Godzilla versus the smog monster, a very important film in this genre. But they've done so many horrible – we've done so many horrible things that, you know, for example, a nonfiction book like Alan Wiseman's The World Without Mm -hmm. Us, which became – I think it was a a miniseries, but it was definitely – there was a television version of it. And it's about – what the planet would look like if all of humanity just disappeared tomorrow. Right. And it and was kind of a fantasy. It was a fantasy based on science. And it inspired the um, the kind of world-building design for the Will Smith film, I Am Legend. Right. Where we see New York having kind of re-naturalized and there's deer running in the street and things mm-hmm. like that, which is straight out of Alan Wiseman's book because he kind of focuses on New York and what would happen to New York. And I think that's the kind of fantasy that you see um, in a lot of stories that are 
not so much about being king of the wasteland, but about just saying, like, humanity itself sucks. It's kind of coming from, like, a species-level self-loathing, a feeling that we had our chance, we could have done something good, but we've permanently screwed it up. There's no redemption. There's no form of reformation that we can have. We should just all die. Mm-hmm. And I think there's that strand of, of nihilism. And then I think there's also stories that are about trying to build a better humanity, like in Margaret Atwood's uh, series that starts with Oryx and Crake, where which is very much a nihilism, especially the first novel is like total nihilism porn, where it's all about these people who create a super virus to wipe out all of humanity, and then they're going to replace humanity with these creatures they call Krakers, who are better designed to be peaceful, or so they believe. They're basically humans, but they are designed to be vegetarians, and they go into heat instead of having sort of being sexually ready all the time. And somehow they've decided, the scientists have decided that if people go into heat, like, they won't fetishize sex as much or something. I'm not really sure. Sounds true. It doesn't... (laughs) You know, if you've ever had a cat that hadn't been spayed yet, you know, you know that they don't think about sex at all. (laughs) It's totally fine. The thing that I hadn't fully appreciated about Margaret Atwood until I read that series is how she's kind of a goofball and she's really a satirist. And so a lot of the stuff in this book is very satirical. As, As you were, I think, rightly pointing out, there's a strong strand of kind of over the top satire in a lot of these stories. And obviously, Dr. Strangelove has that, too. This kind of nihilism is about fully destroying humanity Mm -hmm. and enjoying it. And it's a dark pleasure. It's a satirical pleasure. It's not a like, ho, 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 happy workplace comedy pleasure. It's not a good place type (laughs) um, laughter. But um, I think that at times of great panic and anxiety uh, in real life, that these kinds of stories really appeal to us because, mm-hmm. as I said, I think there's that sense that humans are garbage and either you respond to it by saying, like, let's wipe us all out or just wipe out almost everyone so I can be king of the garbage. Right. You know, and there's often an undercurrent of what we talked about in the rugged individualism episode. Those are the, some of the most rugged individualist stories are often post-apocalyptic and they do kind of have that thing of fetishizing the lone person who's often a white dude who, you know, is a prepper or, you know, survives in the wilderness and is just more prepared. And that's like a, a major thing in in pop culture now. This also makes me think of what we talked about before in the hope episode and like the idea that we need hopeful stories. And the thing about hopeful stories is that you have to imagine ways to – you know, improve the world that we're living in now or ways to build a better world that aren't kind of like based on fetishizing, you know, mass death or destruction. And that's really hard. It's hard to come up with plausible, hopeful scenarios right now um, that don't feel like just pure candy wish fulfillment and that include the hard work of actually building something better. And it's much easier to just you know, imagine a a blank slate caused by some kind of disaster or plague or, you know, whatever, than it is to imagine us actually rolling up our sleeves and fixing the mess that we're in at the moment. So the thing that makes a nihilistic story different from just your standard kind of apocalypse or post-apocalypse is that I think these are stories about characters who bring on the apocalypse, Mm -hmm. who bring on the doom, who take an active role in destroying the world. 
like Dr. Strangelove, like Elliot and Mr. Robot, like the characters in Oryx and Crake, for example, or the Joker. These are people who have agency. So they're not just sort of the victims, the passive victims of a zombie plague or of an atomic war. And so I think the other place that you see this cropping up a lot, and this goes back to your point about hope, is that certain stories that seem like they're hopeful solutions wind up turning into these stories of embracing doom. And I'm thinking specifically of the whole strand of wish fulfillment around AI Mm -hmm. and how AI will come along and save us. And again, I think this can be traced back to Dr. Strangelove, where they have a computer or a set of computers that are going to make the decision about nuclear deterrence. This goes right into the Terminator type story where, you know, they've given an AI control over nuclear launches mm-hmm. and and it decides to wipe out humanity. It kind of reminds me of Ex Machina, which is, of course, a much smaller, more personal story, but it's still about a guy who is basically an AI zealot who believes that he's going to replace humanity with this superior creature. But of course, the superior creature winds up, you know, killing him and, you know, escaping into the world, hopefully to kill everyone else. And I think there's a whole strand of science fiction, which can be summed up with the meme of we welcome our new robot overlords. Because when you welcome your new robot overlords, what you're saying is death to humanity. Right. You know, you're saying, you know, fuck humans. Let the robots take over. And usually when the robots take over, it's a Cyberman situation. Mm -hmm. It's a Terminator situation. It's not a benevolent, happy, like, oh, now everybody has, like, a nice park to sit in while the robots do all the work. You know, that's not ever (laughs) the outcome. And a lot of our most kind of toxic fantasies about the singularity are kind of apocalyptic. They're they're like a nice apocalypse in which, oh, but everybody's going to be happy and we're all going to live forever and like we're going to learn how to fly and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. It's, but it's the undercurrent of it is always that we're going to sweep away the old order and that there's going to be some eggs broken and making that omelet, but we're not going to really focus on that part. We're going to focus on the part where certain people get to live forever and have their brains be like the size of like a billion planets and uh-huh. a other things. And <laughs> yeah, like, do not focus on all the slaves that we had to destroy in order to do that. Yeah. And like, you know, I mean, I'm sure that people, advocates of the singularity would say, no, 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 everybody gets to be happy. But it, I feel like oftentimes there's an unspoken thing in, in the singularity fantasy that kind of does include you know, a measure of kind of creative, what we'll call creative destruction. Kind yeah. Of. And I think, again, that's why for me, Dr. Strangelove and Mr. Robot are such key texts in this genre because they're both so focused on the destructive power of technology. And I think there's that, especially now, a lot of our nihilism focuses on that. And, mm-hmm. you know, how can we use our technology to wreck everything? Um, or how is our technology wrecking everything? And that can be an environmental form of destruction, you know, as all of our e-waste and our Bitcoin farms and all that crap is destroying the environment. We also have, of course, the privacy apocalypse and the anonymity apocalypse and the surveillance apocalypse and all of that stuff. So our minds are being destroyed. Our environment is being destroyed. And we can kind of track it all back to this kind of warmongery techno fetishism. All right. That was uplifting. Yeah. And when we we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about ruin porn. Yay. Yay.
So ruin porn. Charlie Jane, tell us what that is and where it gets started. I mean, ruin porn is largely, you know, encapsulated by the world without us, which we we already talked about. And it's like kind of glorying in wreckage of civilization and like, you know, what remains of a once great empire. And like often there's like that thing of renaturing where like the plants are coming back, the animals are coming back. But also it's just like the glimpses of like what was once a great thing and is now kind of just crumbled. So I also think ruin porn also is kind of embodied by if you've ever seen big collections of photographs of, like, collapsing buildings in mm-hmm. Detroit or, oh, like, yeah. or you know, um, old, like, missile silos yeah. in, in the former Soviet Union that are now collapsing. Like, those are, like, the total apotheosis of ruin porn. They really are. And it's sort of like the flip side of, like, house porn where it's, like, look at this nice, <laughs> beautiful new house and, like, yes. look at this kitchenette. Look at this, like, uh-huh. amazing, like, deck that they've got. It's, like, look at this thing that was amazing and is now, like, totally fucked. <laughs> look at how fucked it was. Look it's at like, the rust. Look at the yeah, exactly. amusement park that's now collapsing into the mud. It's like the... It's like fetish porn versus like, you know, some kind of really degraded porn that's like humiliation you know, porn. Humiliation <laughs> porn. It's like fetish porn versus humiliation porn. It kind of is actually. Okay, and, yeah. Just go ahead know, and use that rubric in your next um, K through twelve class. <laughs> for sure, for sure. And I feel like for me, one of the earliest kind of pieces of ruin porn, I mean, there's been ruin porn forever, but one of the earliest like great examples of ruin porn is the poem Ozymandias where it's like look upon my works you mighty in despair and it's this like statue that's basically completely fucked and everything is destroyed (laughs) and like I feel like the romantic poets really loved that shit they loved and it was this time when you know obviously Europeans were exploring or quote unquote exploring they were you know exploiting they were exploiting the rest of the world and in the process coming upon all of these former citadels and and temples and things all over the place. And so there was like this obsession among Europeans with ruin porn for the first time. And and they wrote a ton of poetry about like the romanticism of buildings that were now trashed. But, you know, where do we see a lot of ruin porn in, in, you know, more recent pop culture and in science fiction and fantasy? Well, I think you're right to sort of start with the romantics. I think that that's, especially in Europe, this idea of an ancient civilization that was super great that we can never fully return to its greatness, right? Like it's kind of like we are living in the trashed remains of that civilization a little bit. And for sure, I think in the United States, H.P. Lovecraft's work draws on that idea a lot. I mean, he was very influenced by romantic literature. And of course, he had uh, an obsession with this sort of idea of a great Western civilization, the Romans and that sort of thing that we'd fallen away from, especially in America. Now it's well known that H.P. Lovecraft was a white supremacist and a big theme of his work was how whiteness had been kind of once a great form of identity because I guess he kind of misunderstood Roman racial identity (laughs) and decided that the Romans were white, not unlike a lot of white supremacists today. And he, Lovecraft kind of reimagined the history of Western civilization, but mapped onto the whole history of Earth, which he was really interested in. He is actually quite interested in in geology and paleontology. And so in Lovecraft's mythos, I'll just tell you, because I know you're excited to learn this, Charlie Jane, 
He has um, a novella, which I think is actually his most interesting work, called At the Mountains of Madness, where some explorers go down to Antarctica and discover the remains of an ancient alien civilization run by what are called the old ones. Sometimes they're called the ancient ones. They're like little starfish-headed melon people, I guess. They kind of look like melons with starfish heads. And they have this amazing underground world that's full of Roman architecture. And then there are these sort of artistic records on the walls of their tombs and of their ancient cities showing how their civilization was degraded by the infiltration of other kinds of aliens, by their greed, and they kind of invent a bunch of alien slaves called Shuggaths, and then the Shuggaths kind of rise up against them, and so there's kind of the slave rebellion. And anyway, of course, slave rebellions for H.P. Lovecraft would have been the beginning of the end of civilization since he was a white supremacist. His characters in the present day are kind of grappling with this history where there was this once great alien civilization that's gone. Um, There's also Cthulhu's civilization, and Cthulhu is kind of the ancient threat. Cthulhu and Cthulhu's spawn are from kind of a Caribbean region. They're super into miscegenation. They're always like coming up on land and trying to hump white people and um, often pretty successfully. And uh, yeah, so nothing is more scary than miscegenation for Lovecraft. And so and for him, miscegenation is a sign of, of civilizational collapse. And so his horror really continues to influence a lot of other writers in fantasy and science fiction. But the other strand, I think, we can see really clearly in um, a lot of fantasy epics. And I want to play a clip from Game of Thrones, the TV show, where Tyrion and Jorah are in a little boat and they're floating through the ancient city of Valeria, right? It's the Valerian Empire, I guess. I believe it's High Valeria. I don't know. Yeah. High Valeria. They're they getting have a high. lot of edibles. There's, There's a lot of edibles in Valeria. And so Valeria is supposed to be kind of the ancient Rome of the world of Westeros. So here's mm-hmm. what they have to say. How many centuries before we learn how to build cities like this again? For thousands of years, the Valerians were the best in the world at... Almost everything. And then? And then they weren't. And then they weren't. They held each other close and turned their backs upon the end. The hills that split asunder and the black that ate the skies. The flames that shot so high and hot that even dragons burned would never be the final sights that fell upon their eyes fly upon a wall, the waves, the sea wind, whipped and churned. A city of a thousand years, and all that men had learned. The doom consumed it all alike, and neither of them turned. So what happens in that clip, which I think is so interesting, especially in light of the poem Ozymandias, is that Tyrion starts talking about like, oh, wow, great ancient civilization. They had these amazing cities, blah, blah, blah. And then he starts quoting from a poem about the end of Valeria. And then Jorah chimes in and kind of finishes off the poem. So it's supposed to be that they both read this great ancient epic. And the epic is actually not about how groovy the Valerians were, but actually how awesome it was when they died out, you know, like how metal, how metal it was, but also just like the kind of 
the ruin porn of it, right? Like the fire and the flame and like mm-hmm. how it was so hot that even dragons burned and like, you know, now they're just still dead. And like that's kind of the whole point of the poem is like, yeah, they died. And it's kind of the flip side of Lovecraft because Lovecraft is all about like, dude, remember when there were these awesome – amazing starfish people who were somehow like white people and like <laughs> were really great and what a bummer it is that we can't you know go back and hang out with the ancient starfish headed white people um, <laughs> I, I still like I just think it's funny that Lovecraft was like all all about like being Mr. Whiteness but like his ultimate like white heroes were starfish headed creatures but anyway for people in Westeros who've written that poem that Tyrion is quoting, Actually, it doesn't sound like they're that nostalgic. It sounds like they're saying like, you know, maybe it was kind of good that the Valerian Empire got trashed. And there's a lot of, you know, talk about how, you know, maybe when dragons were destroying everything and burning shit down, that was kind of bad. Right. And part of what happened to Valeria is that there was the doom of Valeria, which was caused by basically overloading on magic. They were experimenting with magic too much. They went too far and they kind of triggered some kind of like disaster upon themselves. So it is a literally, if I'm remembering the books correctly, it's a, a thing that they brought on themselves. It's kind of like the doomsday device in Doctor right. Strangelove. Yeah. And of course, you know, that kind of hangs over Game of Thrones in general because, you know, magic is coming back and we're starting to experiment with it more. And meanwhile, there's these zombies and like all this other shit going on. The threat of destruction and the threat that we might implicitly cause our destruction through, you know, trying to make cool shit happen with magic is like a thing that's kind of batted around, I feel like. Yeah. And I guess this is sort of the, again, the flip side of kind of the nihilist story because instead of it being about let's welcome the nihil, you know, let's welcome the demise of our civilization, I feel like the message in something like Game of Thrones, at least in that scene, is especially because Tyrion is very anti-war, it's sort of saying, you know, maybe it's kind of better that this civilization stays dead. And like maybe the fact that it's in ruins is kind of what it deserved Mm -hmm. because it was a really warlike, screwed up civilization. And from that angle, ruin porn is less about sort of seeking out a a previous glory and more about saying like, ding dong, the wicked witch is dead. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And I think that, you know, there's also a thing where when we're afraid of something for long enough, when we're sort of living in the middle of an era like which I feel like my entire life I've been aware in the back of my mind that I'm living in a civilization that is not going to last forever and that, you know, the signs of impending collapse have always been around. Like definitely I can remember being a little kid and watching like Ronald Reagan become president and being like, yeah, this is not going to – This ain't going to work out. This is not going to end well. Like this amount of concentrating power in the hands of the wealthy, which was a thing that I heard grownups talking about a lot. This amount of not giving a shit about the environment, this amount of building unsustainable systems. You know that when something is unsustainable, ipso facto, it's not going to last forever. And so you start to like – kind of fantasize about how it's going to end in a way that's like almost protective. It's like trying to prepare yourself for something that you know is coming and you don't know how and you don't know when, but you know that at some point this is all going to fall apart and maybe it'll happen during our lifetime, maybe it won't, but it's inevitable that this is not going to last forever. And so trying to imagine that as a way of kind of 
almost inoculating yourself. But then Mm -hmm. there is a kind of weird pleasure in it. There's a weird pleasure in just sort of imagining like the end of all this complicated stuff. It's like when you build a really fancy thing out of Lego and then you smash it, you know, and you, or you take it apart or whatever. And it's like, ooh, you know, you get to watch all the Lego people like falling down. And it's like, you know, it's kind of exciting. And it's like Roland Emmerich. Like there was that period when we were just were like being bombarded with disaster movies again. And it was kind of exciting to watch like Roland Emmerich destroy the world like five different ways. Mm-hmm. I, I still feel like I've learned a lot about how you played with Legos. So that's <laughs> Good to know. There's another movie I want to bring up in the context of ruin porn, which is the early 90s film by Rusty Kundiev called Tales from the Hood, which if you haven't seen it, you have to go back and check this movie out. It's amazing. Like long before Jordan Peele was doing his amazing horror noir films, Rusty Kundiev did this great set of short stories. It's like four stories in the film, and they're all about like the horror of being black in a white supremacist world. And one of the stories is about a white politician who's clearly supposed to be David Duke, and he's running on a racist ticket in a southern state, and he's moved into an old plantation house. And ultimately, What happens, because he so richly deserves it, is that the ghosts of the slaves who were killed on the plantation come back in the form of little dolls who just murder the fuck out of him. And you're so excited. Like, it's very cathartic because he's just, like, spouting the worst, most racist crap. And so you're like, okay, good. This guy's going to die. The thing that's interesting to me about that in the context of ruin porn is that there's so much activity around preserving plantations in the South and tourism around looking at the ruins of plantations, but also visiting recreated plantations. And a lot of black people have kind of spoken out about how problematic this is Mm -hmm. to be turning this into like a tourism industry because it's basically, you know, these were slave houses. These were places where people were murdered and abused. Mm for, you know, decades or in some cases for centuries, you know, now there's kind of a movement toward having a little section of the plantation tour, you know, acknowledge that slavery was actually kind of bad, maybe. Um, uh, slavery. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. Apparently some some of the plantations are really kind of going in all in on it and are really kind of focusing on like, actually, this is the reality of what slave life was like, but a lot of them aren't. And I think that in the United States, these slave plantations kind of occupy the same place as like Valeria does in Game of Thrones, Mm -hmm. Um, not to, you know, kind of blithely compare like fantasy with reality. But I think that this idea that seeing a plantation in ruins, the pleasure we get from those ruins, it isn't about saying, oh, gosh, there was this great time in the South and like here's this beautiful remains. Actually, it's for many of us about saying, yeah, I'm glad that's in ruins. Mm -hmm. Like, I want to see that only as a ruin. And, like, let's preserve it as a ruin, as something that's dead and remember why it fell into ruin and how it was, you know, a form of ruination even when it was a a going concern. And so if there is any kind of, I don't know, like utopian or socially constructive element that we can pull out of these nihilistic stories, it's that – that kind of feeling, that feeling of saying, like, actually, there was this civilization that was thriving and wealthy and prosperous, and 
it was horrible Mm -hmm. and it was based on oppression and slavery and it deserves to be a ruin. And hopefully, you know, today's civilization won't be based on it, um, even if it kind of is. Yeah. And I think that that's really the central question of this stuff is, is there a way to battle against oppression and exploitation that doesn't just involve ruins, that doesn't just like involve tearing everything down and then maybe we'll build something slightly better in the ashes. Maybe we'll just have a few hundred years of people in the wilderness being rugged individualists and fucking each other over. You know, and I feel like that's part of where our our imaginations need to work harder is to imagine ways to fix it without just destroying everything and causing untold misery in the process. That's right. And I think to me, that's why this episode is fuck your nihilism, because nihilism always ends with ruin. Mm -hmm. And it never imagines, like you said, either getting to a better future by circumventing ruin. Like maybe we could just not have ruins. Like maybe we could just improve things or build them better. Or if we have to destroy, how do we stop the destruction and reach a point where we're rebuilding in a way that won't replicate these problems? All right, we're going to take a little break. And when we come back, we're going to have our segment that you always wish to have, but we don't do very often called What We're Obsessed With. Charlie Jane, what are you obsessed with? I'm finally catching up on the reboot, or it's not a reboot, but a continuation of Runaways, the Marvel comic about a group of teenagers who run away from home after they find out that their parents are secretly evil supervillains by Rainbow Rowell and a few different artists, but I think Chris Anka is the main one. And as you know, I'm a huge Rainbow Rowell fan. I've been reading all of her YA novels. I'm obsessed with the Carry On books. But her Runaways is so freaking good, and it's reminding me of why I really loved that series back when Brian K. Vaughn and various artists were doing it back in the day. It's just such a great kind of, like, teen adventure story, and she just makes these characters, like, sing for me. And, like, you know, I'm just – I'm in love with Gertie and Molly and and the rest of them over all over again, and I'm just so happy that it's back. Yeah, that's great. I love the original series, too. It's so good. What are you obsessed with, Annalie? I am obsessed with Sarah Gailey's new novella called Upright Women Wanted, which is a post-apocalyptic Western, and it's all about rebuilding after there's been some kind of terrible collapse of the United States. And the heroes are a group of queer librarians who defeat bad guys, like literally from horseback with guns, and they have a caravan where they bring books around to different tiny towns on the frontier and rescue queer people who are being abused. And it's like basically everything that your heart needs to be soothed in troubled times when you're feeling like no one's going to come and help you. Just imagine badass librarian gunslingers yeah. coming to rescue you with knowledge and and queer sexuality and non-binary gender and it's just it it's a book that will that will soothe your soul so definitely check it out that's awesome all right you have been listening to our opinions are correct we love you so we really much. do if you would like to support us we have a patreon 
and you can find it at patreon.com slash our opinions are correct. If you sign up, you'll get audio extras. You'll get a chance to read Charlie Jane's and my works in progress. We also post little writing prompts and weird scientific facts every week. And you will get to know that you're warming our hearts by helping to support this show. You can also find us on anywhere your podcasts are distributed electronically. Uh, we really appreciate it if you can leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts. It helps people find us. You can find us on Twitter at OOACpod. And many thanks to our incredible producer, Veronica Simonetti, here at Women's Audio Mission in San Francisco. And thanks to Chris Palmer for the music. And thanks to you for listening. And we will talk to you later on the interwebs. Bye! Bye! Bye.